This is an AMI podcast. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. The atomic bomb really having a moment in 2024, whether it was Oppenheimer blowing up the North American box office last year or taking home a whole bunch of hardware at award shows. Now there's a Netflix docudrama that gives a treatment to Albert Einstein and his moral quandaries with the atomic bomb. Here's a clip from the trailer of Einstein and the bomb. A warning here, the clip does contain imagery of war and the bomb and could be triggering. Albert Einstein gazes. A nuclear bomb explodes. Shockwaves destroy trees, a bus, a building, a boxcar. The first atomic bomb heralded the dawn of a troubling new era. Based on real events in the life of Albert Einstein. Past, present, and future is only an illusion. According to the theory of relativity, there's no essential distinction between mass and energy. The greatest mind of the 20th century. I made one great mistake in my life. Had I known that the Germans would not succeed in producing an atomic bomb. Faces the greatest evil the world has ever known. Troops march. I would not have taken part in the openings at Pandora's box. Let's find out what entertainment critic Amy Amanti thought about Einstein and the bomb. Hey, good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dave. Amy, what drew you to this docu- docudrama? A-, a couple of things, actually. One is, is that um, I like docudramas. Um, I like to learn things, and I like to kind of test the knowledge that I have about certain subjects. And, and two is... I- I- Ever since I was a kid, I kind of had a fascination with Albert Einstein because my parents uh, owned a a delicatessen, a soup and sandwich shop called Einstein's Food for Thought. And uh, I used to work there as a kid. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, it was at the time I was like 14 years old, 13, 14 years old. And at the time, people were very much into fast food. But, you know, my mother would go in at 5 a.m. and make soups from scratch and you know, it was very, very, um, you know, homemade stuff. And so, uh, yeah, so I would make all the collages from Einstein calendars and stuff. And so I just, I, you know, I kind of I kind of have a personal draw. So I, I hit play. Amy, um, for the average viewer who might only know mm-hmm. E equals MC squared, how yeah. much do they need to know before they might jump into this docudrama? Well, I mean, the, the, the movie does a, a fair idea, you know, fair, fair job of unpacking some of this stuff. Um, it doesn't sort of use uh, familiar terms like the Manhattan Project. So, you know, if you saw Oppenheimer, you probably have a good lead in to this subject matter. Um, you know, in this clip, he, he, um, Einstein references opening Pandora's box. Um, which is a reference to the Manhattan Project. And so I didn't see Oppenheimer. Um, And I actually started and stopped this film like three times before I really could get into it. Um, And so I was having a conversation with my mother about it. And I said, like, what is this film even about? Because I am having trouble getting into it. And her, because she watched it too. She watched both Oppenheimer and this one. She said, you know, for me, she said Oppenheimer was very much about um, like Einstein had a very small role in Oppenheimer around the atomic bomb. And yeah, in this movie, yeah. they, 
they say that Oppenheimer, uh, that Einstein has a very big role around uh, the atomic bomb and the Manhattan Project. And in this film, when Einstein says, you know, he made one big mistake in his life, and that's about, you know, him sort of saying to the Americans, heads up, the Germans are going to create an atomic bomb. Here's how you do it kind of thing. But the Germans never were able to create an atomic bomb. But then the Americans were. And that opened a whole Pandora's box. How much of your difficulty in getting into the movie had to do with the way in which the story was told? I think most of it, Dave, was how the story was told. So there's this brilliant moment, I think, at the beginning, which I think is probably the problematic thing, but it's, it's a brilliant concept for storytelling, but it kind of makes it a bit fragmented in which they say at the beginning of this film that all of the dialogue is taken from actual things that Einstein had either said or written. So you're working with dialogue that actually came from his mouth or his Mm. writings, um, which means you're limited to what he said or put in print, um, which could be an interesting challenge or could make things quite fragmented. Uh, it's a mixture of of an actor who's playing Einstein with archival footage, um, with uh, voiceover, with text inlaid on top of screen. Mm. So it's a mixture of all of these different storytelling um, styles. And I it just went back and forth between time and moments and different. T- and I just was like, where are we now? How is this connected? You know, so I found that to be a little bit discombobulated. Yeah, the, even even the way you describe it, I think of okay, that's creative, but it also sounds incredibly jarring. It is. It's it's quite um, taxing on the mind if you don't have access to the visuals, right? Back even back and forth between color and black and white, um, you know that kind of thing is a real a real powerful visual. And you know when you're in archival versus present day, which really mm-hmm. isn't present day, but mm-hmm. present day for the film based on color and black and white and all those kinds of things. But even when you're in archival and Einstein is speaking in archival versus where the actor is speaking in present day, you know, the, the actor's trying to match very closely what Einstein sounded like. And at moments you're like, okay, is this archival or is this present day? Or, or the actor would take over something that Einstein was saying from archival. So it would start with the archival and then it would blend into mm, the actor speaking mm. it today. And you're like, I don't understand. Are they in Royal Albert Hall or are they not? Because he starts with his speech in Royal Albert Hall, but then he's not in Royal Albert Hall when he continues the speech. So it was, it was hard for me to um, position myself within this film at times. And that sounds perhaps as though there was an issue with the audio description or the audio description may have required extra strategizing that didn't occur. Yeah, I think that's also true. Sometimes they weren't able to tell us when we were in or out of archival. Um, Sometimes, uh, uh, I mean, this is, so Dave, we've talked about this before and that it would have been great to have had like a pre-show audio setup of this film. This would have been a great example of um, how that could have been utilized in a great way to set up what kind of film this is, what kind of techniques are being used um, so that I know that all archivals in black and white and all present day is this and that this film goes back and forth between time. And so that it sets up these these concepts for me so that my brain doesn't have to work so hard in the moment. Um, I really hope we get to that someday, especially for things like a Netflix original series or a, a prime original series, right? Because we have time to do that. All it has to be is a separate file at the beginning of a streaming service. 
Um, and they have the power to do that. So this would have been a great example of how we could utilize that kind of additional feature. When we launch our consulting firm, that's how we're going to get our first that's big right. contract. So we're going to spend that Jeff Bezos money from Amazon Prime. Uh, Amy, <laughs> what, now, now knowing that you were an Einstein head going in, and, mm-hmm. and admittedly you didn't have, well, you didn't have a great time getting into the storytelling. Did the film do anything well? What did it do well? I mean, I think that that if you're somebody who likes history, um, you'll probably get into it. Rather, and I like history, but it's the storytelling thing that was hard for me. Um, so I, I found that the historical knowledge was was interesting, but I was in and out of the story because of that. Um, I found that the actor that played Einstein was quite captivating. That felt very real and authentic to me. And I felt like I learned some things about Einstein that I didn't know before. And like, I feel so not smart when I say this out loud, but I actually didn't know that he was Jewish. I had always thought that he was German, um, but I didn't know that he was Jewish. He didn't practice Judaism and he didn't um, uh, identify with the Jewish uh, Jewish religion, but he was essentially a, a Jewish. And so, um, you know, he was stripped of everything by the Nazis and fled uh, because he was Jewish as well as being, um, you know, mm quite famous and all of those kinds of things and then put into hiding. So those pieces I didn't I didn't remember about him that he had gone into hiding and all of those kinds of pieces. So there were some things about there that I was like, oh, shoot, I kind of forgot about this. And then it felt really timely to kind of what's going on today mm. um, in a sense. And I was kind of appreciative about the time um, that I was spending with this film and how how I could connect it to the dots of, of kind of um, some of the anti-Semitism stuff that I have been experiencing here in Vancouver today. So do you recommend Einstein and the bomb? Yeah. You know what? Um, I would recommend it simply because um, docudramas have an important space um, in our uh, history of filmmaking and storytelling can be fragmented and hard. Again, it took me a couple of times to hit play on this one. I say, give it a chance because it's worth the history lesson it's worth the knowledge. Um, you may just want to watch it a couple of times, um, but they're they're really trying to do something here, and maybe watch it with Oppenheimer and see how the two compare for you. That's a um, more logical double feature than Barbie and Oppenheimer. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Those are two very juxtaposition films. <laughs> Amy, thank you for this. Have a lovely day. Yeah, you too, Dave. You can find Einstein and the Bomb streaming on Netflix. You can find Laura Bain at the entertainment desk and. Laura, uh, there's there's sort of some common threads here between Einstein and the bomb and Oppenheimer and some awards hardware that got handed out over the weekend. Yes, that's right. A good kind of transition here between myself and Amy. So uh, the Screen Screen Actors Guild Awards happened on Saturday. Now, they were done as a live broadcast on Netflix for the first time, and they're still available if someone wants to go back and watch them on the platform. It's over a three-hour broadcast. Of course, that contain, that includes all the red carpet stuff. So these awards are chosen by SAG members, which is kind of neat. They're chosen by the actors themselves. But nonetheless, we saw pretty much a repeat of what we've been seeing all award season with Oppenheimer, Succession, and The Bear taking home the most hardware of the night. Uh, And the biggest award at the SAG Awards is Outstanding Performance by a Cast, and that went to Oppenheimer. Um, 
The only other thing I'll mention about that night is Barbara Streisand, Barbara Streisand taking home a much deserved lifetime oh. achievement award. Apparently, today is one of those days where I'm, <laughs> I'm tripping over my own tongue. So please I mean, did, I mean, me did you that. not did you not hear the way I started segment three? Uh, I think I think maybe there's a commonality here. There's something in the air. It's a Monday. So this this is the last big award show of the season before we get to the Oscars on March 10th. And for that reason, it's sort of considered a bit of a predictor of what is going to happen at the Oscars. So I thought that we could take a look at the films that are nominated for a Best Picture at the Oscars and kind of see where their standing is thus far okay. in award season. Now, of course, there's dozens and dozens of awards. I didn't look at all of those, but I, I looked at kind of the top ones, the Golden Globes, Critics' Choice, British Academy of uh, Film and TV, mm-hmm. and SAG, Directors Guild, People's Choice Awards. Wait, okay. Oh my gosh, Laura, you're doing so much math this morning. No wonder you're having trouble with your words. You're doing numbers all day. I, I think that's it. So we'll just run through what's nominated, Dave, and then I'm going to get your pick. So we've got American Fiction with two awards so far. Anatomy of a Fall has picked up four. Barbie has picked up 13, and most of those were at the Critics' Choice and the People's Choice Awards so far. Mm. Uh, the Holdovers with a solid eight. Killers of the Flower Moon with two. That sort of surprised me. I thought they had been doing better, but I think it's because there's been so many nominations. And Maestro picking up zero so far. Again, that surprised me a little bit, but I think it's just because it's been nominated so much that we've been seeing it over and over in those Mm. sort of awards news. Oppenheimer, 26 awards so far. And what's kind of interesting about that, so just, you know, heads and shoulders, I guess, actually, that's literally twice as many as Barbie, which is the second place Mm -hmm. contender for awards. But really, with Oppenheimer, seeing it spread across a lot of different uh, kind of award awards that it's received, uh, Past Lives with one, Four Things with seven, and The Zone of Interest with three. So, Dave, might be a little bit of an obvious one, but what's your pick for best picture at the Oscars. Well, I, I, I'm interested by the film that came in number three here in terms of your total mm. awards one, Poor Things, because it's mm. been a very polarizing film. It's also extremely weird. And if there's one thing the Academy loves, they love recognizing a strange film that has a little bit of star power behind it. I'm thinking about when The Shape of Water won the Academy Award in 2018, Mm. which looking back was just a disastrous pick. But the people who make up the Academy love these bizarre movies that they think of as film. So I wonder if maybe the Academy goes off the board here and gives poor things the big win. What do you think? I think that's that's very possible. I like how you're thinking. I do think it's probably going to go to Oppenheimer. Oh, yeah. I don't think Barbie has a hope. I don't think there's any chance that Barbie's going to win it. Um, but in terms of a second choice, I don't think we can necessarily look at the numbers so far. I think we could see Killers of the Flower Moon, potentially. But I was also looking at uh, the holdovers and poor things yeah, uh, as, yeah. as likely candidates. The Holdovers has very much become a critic's darling. This is a film that a lot Mm -hmm. of critics are giving a ton of love to. I I do want to backtrack to what you mentioned about Maestro, though, with the zero wins that it's picked up. 
I wonder if that's just a question of on people's radar, that maybe it gets kind of lost here, even in the mix of the 10 films that have been nominated, because my friend Josh, who is a movie lover, as soon as he watched it, said, Bradley Cooper, best actor, like, book it right now. And I, and I just mm-hmm. I just wonder if maybe it's a distribution thing that people don't know where to find Maestro or it's not popping up in their algorithms. It's not as algorithmically appealing. I, I, I wonder if that's maybe where a film like that is ending up. Because even though it's been recommended mm-hmm. to me by a bunch of people, I still haven't hit play yet. I still haven't endeavored to watch it yet. Yeah, same. And it did have a fairly short theatrical run and then it was on Netflix. So I believe it is on Netflix to stream. Um, I've also heard good things about the film. I haven't hit play on it yet. And I think that's why I was surprised by the zero so far. Honestly, Dave, I have some watching to do before March 10th. I haven't, (laughs) I hate to admit this, I haven't seen Oppenheimer, so I've got to, I've got to make it through that one. But, um, you know, speaking of Netflix, Dave, uh, well, the Oscars are not going to be there. They're going to be on CTV in Canada, ABC in the States. No streaming option. What do you kind of think about this uh, streaming platform like the SAG Awards went with Netflix versus, uh, you know, on traditional mm-hmm, network mm-hmm. television? What's going to be more likely to get you to tune in? Ooh, uh, probably none of the above. <laughs> yeah. But but I, but I would just say uh, on demand is your friend and the less paywalls, the better. So uh, YouTube, put all this stuff on YouTube where I can yeah. just click one link and get it and then show me as many ads as you want. Yeah, that's fair, you know, and if I'm being honest, I'm not really one for these, like the, as I said, it's over three hours long. Um, I'm more of a watch the highlights the next day kind of person, (laughs) and that usually does happen on YouTube. So I'm with you with with neither, although I do like the replay aspect of Netflix. Laura, I've kept you way over time here, but I do have one last thought, because it's funny. I was thinking about this this morning. I had a sense you were going to bring this topic to the table, and I've oftentimes been talking about the death and decline of monoculture within society, that it's harder to find singular things to bring large groups of eyeballs and eardrums together to focus. And mm-hmm. and I, I know that, that you're tired of me talking about football and the Super Bowl, but, no you know, 120 million people tuned into that game in North America. And, mm-hmm. you know, the Oscars might get a handful of million of people. And you know what the difference is in regards to monoculture? You have to do homework to appreciate the Oscars. Otherwise, you're just sitting there having people talking about things that you're not part of, whereas you could not watch a single second of football for the year but still understand why you're sitting there for three hours because the score is on the screen. Oh, Dave, I completely disagree, even though I do suspect that you're right, because there is a lot of homework I would have to do in order to watch a football game and have any sort of understanding (laughs) or investment um, beyond the seeing the score go up on the scoreboard. But I guess that's why they have the halftime show and the ads are for people like me who don't understand what's going on. Or you can gamble. Uh, Laura, thank you for this. Thanks, Dave. That's Laura Bain of the Entertainment Desk. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.